point of that class isn't so much that they become a type designer. The point of that class is that they understand what's behind, you know, an alphabet. And most importantly, that they learn to see. It gives you a discipline. Okay, even though you've drawn this S 10 times, it's still not good. And you're gonna have to draw it like, you know, 10 more times or even more. Hey, everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the weekly typographic. Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice. It's going to be fun. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. This week on the podcast, we have Karen Chang. Karen is a professor of visual communications design at the University of Washington in Seattle and has been teaching type design there since 1997. In 2006, her book Designing Type was published by Yale University Press and has since been a staple on type design bookshelves around the world. The second edition of Designing Type was just recently released on October 20th in the U.S. and the U.K. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for having me. So excited for you to be here with us. I have a bunch of questions. Your book designing type was a big influence for me. I want to hear all about your experience as an educator in the type design world. I did some research. I did a lot of research on you. (laughs) Sorry if it comes off creepy. But I found out that you did not actually start your career in design. You went to school for chemical engineering, which is unusual um, to see someone so successful in the design world that is teaching design that had such a different background. So I kind of want to talk about how you came into your creative career and what led you to your passion and becoming a professor. Well, as an Asian person, you know, most Asian kids my age and maybe even today still have the same experience. My parents were like, you can be a doctor or you can be a lawyer (laughs) or you could be an engineer. Um, So uh, my sister actually is an MD PhD and I got my degree in chemical engineering from Penn State. So we were just good little girls and we did like they told us. And, you know, I think they had our best, you know, interests at heart. They wanted us to be successful and have something regular. I mean, they were both from Taiwan. They came to this country for graduate degrees and they wanted to make sure their children had like political freedom and economic freedom. I was always more interested in art or especially in writing, um, and, but my parents were pretty confident that that would wind up with me just like starving on the streets like Van Gogh or something like that. So they were pretty discouraging. I got my first job after undergrad at Procter & Gamble. That was a pretty great job because at that time, most of the jobs for chemical engineers were in petrochemicals. And so, but when I worked at Procter, I actually found out about average advertising because of course like they had brand management there and they had advertising and I was really interested in that and they had a really um, numerical approach at that time and so somebody with an engineering degree you know and that was actually kind of useful from an analytics standpoint and I was there for two or three years Um, and I was frustrated I, I liked it but it wasn't really what I wanted to do and so I decided to leave my job and train as a designer so I went to the University of Cincinnati which was luckily a great school in Cincinnati where Procter & Gamble was located and I went through their program. So once you went through the design program, I heard you had a connection that knew someone at the University of Washington and you kind of like immediately jumped into teaching and educating or was there any sort of step between going through education and then, you know, becoming an educator? 
I had a year after graduation in which I was just teaching as an adjunct, actually, at different schools. That's actually how, in a weird way, this book started. There's a little academy called the Art Academy of Cincinnati. It used to be part of the Cincinnati Art Museum School, but it privatized and became its own school. And so the year after I graduated, I thought I would look for a full-time academic job. But in the meantime, I freelanced, and then I also taught as a guest at like all the local places. And so they hired me to do a beginning graphic design class. And I thought, okay, I'll try this type design thing on them. It's really small. There are only six to eight kids in the class. And so it seemed kind of silly to like stand at the blackboard and lecture like six to eight students. And it just seemed like a waste of um, time kind of. So I started making these handouts where, I mean, it was no big deal. It was just like, okay, I would set like a Garamond E or um, a Bodoni E and then like a Clarendon E and be like, okay, here's these different E's. But a strange thing is that um, when you start out and you show those things to new designers, they were like, what's the difference between these E's? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, well, those, there's actually a lot of differences. So I started to like annotate those sheets, you know, it's like, I was like, oh, okay, this one has a bracket, this one doesn't, or this is contrast and stuff. And so I started making them more elaborate. And I actually remember one day going in, and one of the students said to me, oh, good, these sheets are really helpful. <laughs> so because I have kind of an OCD thing, like I'm very obsessive, that was all it needed for me to be like, okay, like more sheets, <laughs> you know, like more diagrams, you know. So I started making these things. And because I had all these little teaching gigs in town, you know, it was kind of a forcing function. Like I'm like, oh, I'm making this stuff and I'm using it every day. So I showed it to my old thesis advisor and he was like, um, hey, you know, you actually have the beginnings of a book here. And so I was like, oh, maybe someday I'll make this into a book. Wow. And were you in any type design classes while you were in Cincinnati that kind of inspired some of the curriculum for what you were teaching? Yeah, see, my thesis advisor, Heinz Schenker, he was actually the guy who taught all the type design classes. And he was a graduate of the Basel School. You know, his teacher was Armin Hoffman and Emil Ruder, you know, all the classic sort of Swiss modern greats. And so he would do this class where he would um, stand at the board and he would draw the letters. And you had to basically make um, serif alphabet, an old Roman alphabet, a new Roman alphabet, and a slab serif alphabet, as well as a sans serif alphabet. It wasn't that bad because you didn't do the whole, you sketched all of the letters, but he had you make these display boards. So it was more in the days of commercial lettering. You know how like before the computer you had to indicate type on a layout, you had to kind of draw it. And so it was kind of important for designers to know how to roughly draw the main type styles of lettering. And that's kind of the origin of it. Yeah, I think that like there's sometimes a dispute that I've heard that professors have talked about in teaching typography these days because there's so much accessibility to just like fonts on our computer and not having to think too much. You turn one on, you put it to a specific point size, you call it a day for a lot of design students. A lot of that technical craft has been lost. I mean, do you think that your background as an engineering student made a seamless connection to doing type design and that sort of technical like way and manner because I feel like that way of doing type is is 
less by feeling and more by actually really understanding the letters and construction? Well, I think I certainly had the drafting kind of mentality about the letters. You know, when they showed us the T-square and the triangle, I was like, oh, I know what that is. (laughs) I know how to use that. So that was really kind of comfortable. Plus, I think that kind of search for rules was really comfortable. So probably what's been harder for me has been actually always maybe finding the, the art or the swing or the calligraphy. That's still sort of hard for me. I must say I'm kind of a stiff, you know, maybe even boring designer sometimes. <laughs> That's interesting just because, I don't know, through my own art school experience, it was always the exact opposite. It was like all swing and no drafting, <laughs> you know? And so it's really easier place to be, I think, because it's easier to take something that's too wild and to calm it down than to take something boring and try to find a way to juice it up. So I actually think you're in the ideal position. (laughs) mm, That's interesting. I didn't really think about it like that. But, you know, I guess in, in relation to like, is that a lost craft? Do you notice i mean i don't want to jump ahead too much in what you have planned olivia but like do you do you notice a difference in the way that you were trained leading up to this information to you being a teacher versus the students that you're working with now well students want to use software there's no question about that like they're more comfortable with software than i am for example and they're always eager to like get out that you know wacom tablet and be like oh look you can do all these things in there but i think they pretty quickly see that if you just kind of construct the letters out of geometric shapes they don't look too good you know (laughs) so yeah but i think their comfort with software is certainly bigger but you know i think there's also a backlash where because everything we do now is on the computer, maybe now because of COVID-19 especially, that like people are pretty eager to get off the computer and do things. I know we have a publication design class going on and I had talked to the faculty member and said, well, it looks like a great year to talk about ebook design. <laughs> but I know all the students actually want to do a print book. Like they're tired of, you know, everything being on the screens. So, you know, maybe Maybe there's uh, some some back and forth. A lot of them have hobbies that seem very manual, like baking or gardening or sewing. Maybe there's mm. a certain amount of craft resurgence. I was into felting when I was in college, so <laughs> I, I get that impulse a lot. I actually felt that impulse a lot during college as well, just creating things with your hands for once. Because it, it is really feel- pleasurable. Some yeah. of the students, well, I still actually make them draw the letters, and some of them actually tell me that's their favorite part, like that you can just kind of, you know, keep drawing and like the hours sort of dissolve away, and all of a sudden it's 3 a.m. and you've only done three letters. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I can see that. I was definitely guilty of that. I mean, so one of our first questions I want to ask you is something that I've been really kind of mulling over since I've known we're going to interview you is that I was trying to design my own typeface when I was in college and that was in 2016. And I really didn't have any professors guiding me on how to design type. There wasn't really anyone that was an expert in the field at my college, but I was like, I'm just going to you know, teach myself how to do it. I had a really hard time finding resources that were relevant to how to design type in the 21st century with the technology we have available. And I just had a really hard time in general finding really robust resources. I came across your book when I was at my college library and it like 
just really saved me in a lot of ways because I was I wasn't trying to make a typeface that was that crazy. I wanted to teach myself how to make a pretty standard kind of Scotch Roman, so medium contrast, almost almost like transitional font. And I think your book like really saved me in so many ways. I had it by my side when I was renting it from the library. I eventually convinced my parents to lend me some money to buy it that semester. And so I I really was really meaningful to my personal education and unlocked what seemed kind of like this gatekeeper attitude that was around type design that I really thought I had to go to a major program, whether that be Type West or Type at Cooper or, you know, University of Reading to understand. I'm very grateful. I've met a lot of people along the way that absolutely love your book. And so I really wanted to ask, like, this is a huge undertaking. It's very detailed. It's incredibly useful. It's not something that happens overnight. Like, how did how do you gather so much information um, about this topic that really seemed under-resourced previously? And what sort of resources did you use to get there? You know, it was a really hard thing to research because I was working on it in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And so I know it's hard for our students now to conceive of life before the internet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that there was like no Google, you know. But I was a pretty big library nerd growing up. Like my parents would take me to the library every Saturday. So I sort of grew, grew up like using it. There was a thing called like the design index, you know, just like there used to be this like reader's guide stuff, it would index all the design magazines. So it was pretty slow. So I mean, I think I began in an obvious way it was like, okay, I've heard of Matthew Carter, he seems to do some pretty good things. Like, so I'm just gonna look up every article that ever mentions Matthew Carter. <laughs> so that was like, you know, so that wasn't so bad. And you could get all kinds of things through. <laughs> I mean, it was a little gonna breeze over that and pretend that's not so bad. <laughs> well, that's incredible. Like, well, I mean, he was interviewed at quite, uh, quite a few things. And he had written some things too. There used to be like an old magazine called Fine Print, for example. And there was an older magazine called the Monotype Recorder. It was like a trade magazine that you could get. I think the worst part was that learning that way inevitably kind of makes lots of gaps. Like I myself actually wish I had been able to go to Reading or KABK or a program like that. Because okay, on one hand, like I would read Eric Gill's book about type and then like, you know, an American book of like Frederick Gowdy, what he thinks of the alphabet. And then there'd be these American things like Updike and the history of letters and stuff like that, right? And then you'd move to something by the Swiss guys like Odell Eicher talking about how Rotus is this great accomplishment. And you're like, hmm, like these are pretty different views. <laughs> like, how does that, like how do I square this up, you know? Mm. <laughs> so it's sort of, it was a confusing thing trying to understand. And I still feel that way today. Like what is good type? You know, because now, especially, I think there are people making such crazy stuff that we were always told, like, no, you should never do this. You know, like stretch the type or people adding kind of weird little serifs or semi-serifs, like strange contrast, all this stuff. But you just see it's become so much more pluralistic. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I guess like it's hard to sort of say, but I mean, you can find all this stuff if you dig around. And then at one point I had like you know, a lot of note cards, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it was just really old school. Like you would just, you know, you would put the categories together and then I would try to decide, well, what is really useful and what is not. 
but you know, you go through periods too. Like it just seemed easy in the beginning. I was like, okay, I'll just go through each letter and I'll make a spread on each letter. And like, I'll show the basic structures and that'll be fine. You know, but then when you get into it, you're like, Hey, there's a lot of different opinions. I'm not sure what I think anymore. You know? And then at different points, you're like, you know what? I shouldn't write this book. I'm in over my head. Mm. This was a bad idea. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it's just like, you don't know what you don't know. So you go into it kind of blithe and then you quickly realize like, Ooh, this is a big area. <laughs> Wow, I mean, that there's... is very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be so overwhelmed. I mean, you went page by page, like capital letter A, that's a serif. Lowercase little letter A, that's a sans serif. Like, it is so detailed. I mean, did you get all this information on those nitty gritty details from like the course that you took when you were in Ohio? Or like, was it half and half resources you found and course knowledge that you knew? Like, it's just an overwhelming amount of information. Well, some of it is just, I did get some from Heinz and he does a great job, you know, and in a way, I think it was sort of a, an apprentice thing on his level. I got the impression when he learned it, his teacher did the same thing. And so it was kind of passed down. I guess that was the bad thing about graphic design being kind of in a relatively new profession, you know, that people didn't write down their knowledge in books that it was kind of this oral craft tradition, mm-hmm. you know, whereas in engineering, it's like, you know, no one tried to design like a chemical reactor that way, you know, they wrote stuff down <laughs> so that you could learn it from, from yeah. other people, <laughs> you know. So I asked him, you know, I was like, hey, is there any book that goes over this? And there are some books, like, you know, those lettering books by like David Gates, you know, Lettering for Reproduction. There's like a really old book by Mortimer Leach called Lettering for Advertising. Again, it was like these books that kind of explained like how you were going to indicate type on your layout in the 50s. So there were were some things, but, you know, they were much less about what it means to make a font. But there's a lot you can tell just as like, in a weird way as a scientist, if you select a bunch of letters and you set them and you look at the differences and then you put other letters next to them, you can kind of as an anthropologist sort of see, oh, I see what they were doing. I love you mentioning looking at it as if an anthropologist was looking at it because I don't know anyone that looks at alphabets that way and can dissect them in that way that I think puts you at a really unique advantage when writing the book because I think ultimately if someone wants to design a typeface, like they have some sort of artistic creative direction in mind, I ultimately think like a big missing link for so many people that want to design typeface is just technically understand why certain type looks good, why weights in certain areas make sense, how things can indicate if it's an old style or calligraphic or, you know, a digital typeface. And I really think that that your book can put people one step further from taking their creative vision to actually implementing it. And that's a really unique thing. And I think that is something that seems like, okay, yeah, that's very technical, but that is groundbreaking as far as what I've seen in type design education for the masses at this point, you know? Well, it's nice of you to say. I must say, like, after doing all that, though, sometimes I felt like, why am I doing this? (laughs) This is valuable. Because it's sort of like, I realized, like, after doing it and trying to find these rules, there are no rules. <laughs> like there's great type that has no rules. Like you ever go on to like type drawers, there's a long thread about a newbie asks like, how do I draw an S? And all these people have like these like formulas, you know, but I think there was one guy who said, I just throw some points down and have at it. <laughs> I was like, well, 
that's good too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I think there's lots of ways to kind of do it. You know, I mean, I think because of the nature of the kind of person I am, I really did try to dissect it and so forth. But I don't know how helpful that is when you have a creative impulse too. Like it's important. I think too, ultimately, like, like typography is a combination of creative and engineering. Like there, yeah. there are some reasonings behind why we read letters a certain way and why there's pieces to letters that have these qualities to them. And I think a lot of that is still, a lot of that information is not passed down as frequently as the creative direction of do whatever your heart desires and, you know, copy this thing that you think looks good without realizing why it works. And so mm -hmm. I think having a resource, like you coming from this engineering background and having this anthropologist mindset gives this unique element to the landscape of saying, oh, here's the engineering pieces. If you're fine with the creative parts, here's the parts that you don't know about the engineering. And for the people who are of an engineering mindset, they can latch onto that and be like, oh, I'll, there's plenty of places to try to practice being more creative. So I think it's, it's a really useful balance that you have provided into the system of education where I think it's still very much like how you were describing graphic design was when you were getting into it, where it's information that for the most part is only passed down human to human. There's a handful of resources that have started to exist in the last five years maybe to try to teach type design to the masses, to anybody who wants it via the internet, mm -hmm. but they're still pretty rare. There's a great book that came out. Have you seen it? It's called uh, Type Design from Sketch to Screen. It's by three, I think, um, you know, uh, Latin or Spanish designers, um, Cristobal Henestrosa, Laura Mesker, and then Jose Scaglioni, I think it is. I thought that is a really wonderful book that also talks much more broadly. It doesn't go letter by letter, but I thought that, like, I think that I really admire the the work that they put into that because it's it's both technical. They talk about some of those technical difficulties, but they also talk about like the impetus for a typeface. I think that's really nice. That is nice. That book was actually just recommended to us, Micah. We did an episode on the our favorite books in type design and typography and design, and someone emailed us and said, "Hey, you should check out this book. It's really fantastic." That, it is really excellent. I think the English translation is much newer. There's a great quote in there where I think it's Cristobal Henestrosa. He says that he gets, most type designers get annoyed when they say, why design another typeface? There are, another, there are more typefaces. He says like, uh, hey, we would have lost a lot if nobody had made rock music after the Beatles. That is a great perspective. I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, no, I, it's clever. I read that he's also involved in music as a critic or something. So maybe that's why it um, you know, came real naturally to him. I think there are better books now than there used to be. Like when I was working on mine, the Doyle Young book came out, the Fonts and Logos book, and that was a huge inspiration for me. But he comes also from that kind of lettering tradition. So there was, you know, more of that kind of connection for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, would you say that the main impetus for writing, designing type was for your students or was it like for broader education of type design um, when you started it and did that change throughout you writing it? 
No, I always thought it would be for that person who was making their first typeface. So I kind of thought like Olivia, like you were the ideal audience <laughs> because I was sort of writing it for, you know, my own students who usually they're students who already know what type is. It's not like you're saying like, okay, this is a serif, but I think you're, they want to know like, okay, if I make a typeface, like what's just the steps I need to take and how does it all come together? I thought of it as like a novice. Although I did think like the novice could be a graphic designer who would been practicing for 20 or 30 years, but decided to make, you know, their own typeface, you know, so it's sort of like not a student in, in that regard, but just someone who is new to type. That makes sense. Which I mean, honestly, I think fits a lot of the league audience perfectly. Like we get a lot of emails and people join the newsletter saying either I am a student and this seemed like a good resource and like I want to know about it. I'm curious about making a font, but I also have to learn about graphic design. And then there's a lot of other people that are like, I've been graphic designer for 40 years and I've always thought it would be really fun, but never knew how to start making a typeface. And yeah, so I that think seems it, like, like both great... are fantastic new learners, right? Yeah, I think, and you can see that too, I think even with all these programs that have popped up like Type West or, you know, Type at Cooper, or um, I really admire Jean-Francois Porches's uh, Type Paris. He's the other person who actually really helped me quite a bit because I, um, I met him when I was in Paris and we were both speaking at an information design conference. He was, of course, talking about type. My book was out and he knew who, who I was and he mentioned to me that he gives these type design workshops. So, uh, um, I got a grant and he came to the U.S. It was actually, I think, his first, one of his first trips to the U.S. in 2012. And so he showed our class through a type design process. So it was great. That was probably like some of the most helpful information I had because, you know, he's a professional type designer, you know, very good. And he also had the heart of an educator. I think he's done a lot to revive type design education in Paris. And mm -hmm. he was a very generous, but also a relentless critic, which I thought was great. <laughs> yeah, no. sounds like a true type yeah. designer <laughs> yeah no it was kind of interesting because I guess one of my students went on to type at Cooper where Jean-Francois was also for a summer you know and he said some of the teachers were like hey looks good but Jean-Francois would go over your R with you for like an hour he's <laughs> <laughs> like oh yeah he really cares <laughs> I I loved your section in Type Weekend during your talk. I mean, you talked about him visiting the students and giving critiques. I also learned in that talk that your students are sophomore level, which I was so surprised because I think when that was the first year that like I was first introduced to typography in art school and it was very much like typography is great, but there's so much you don't know. And you think you could design a font? No, you can't. That's really for masters of a certain level. They made it really seem like type design was incredibly inaccessible and and that you kind of had to reach this new level of nirvana in graphic design <laughs> to understand type design. I think it's great that you're teaching it to students at sophomore level. And I have my own opinion about possible answers to this. But, you know, what do you think that your class brings to the overall design education? Type design can seem so niche, but um, what other values do you think it brings to a, a design student's education? Sure. I mean, it is niche in that 
you know, I don't think I expect any of those kids to actually become type designers, you know, and I have to say, if you actually looked at their font files, it's very shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Like they can make it look good for, you know, a specific application like a poster, but it's not like it's not ready to go by any means. The point of that class isn't so much that they become a type designer. The point of that class is that they understand what's behind, you know, an alphabet. And most importantly, that they learn to see. Like one of the seniors who he zoomed into my final critique this last spring and he said, after this class, I stopped going to DeFont and downloading free fonts. (laughs) It was like, because I realized like, that is crap. (laughs) You know, and so I think that's a valuable thing. And then the other thing he said, which I thought was funny, is he said that um, it gives you discipline. He's like, okay, even though you've drawn this S 10 times, it's still not good. And you're gonna have to draw it like, you know, 10 more times or even more, you know, so I think it gives you a certain kind of process so that you kind of understand that uh, raising the bar for yourself, you know, is something that it, it does. The other thing I guess I would say about it, though, is that I wonder whether, should the class be more fun? Because it seemed to me, like I noticed on a different eval, a student wrote, like, I'm a little traumatized by this class. <laughs> you know? I do think like, it is hard to go over and over at things without achieving a certain level of success. Like, have you ever seen uh, that um, documentary, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Oh, yeah. They make that poor guy make that egg omelet for the sushi like thousands of times. And finally, when they tell him, okay, they can serve it to customers, like, he cries. <laughs> it's just like, it's really pretty draining, you know, and I don't think they're mean to him or anything, but they, they have a certain standard and he's got to reach it. But I wonder whether maybe does that approach like turn off people? I, I noticed there's another group in town, an agency called Fuzzco. They came and gave a talk. They do great work. And they have this fun side project they call like pretend foundry, where I guess when the studio is not busy, they work on these typefaces and they're all display typefaces faces and they're very um, playful and I wouldn't say they're at like the pinnacle of craft but I would also say that kind of doesn't matter like they're sort of you know fun type things Mm -hmm. and I realized like oh I'm not letting my kids have any fun (laughs) like I'm like you know draw this s no it's no good draw this eight no it's no good and I do think they learn through that but I wonder whether maybe I should do like a shorter funner project where they just get to have something more joyful like maybe make letters with you know masking tape or something like that this is hard because I'm not a really fun person like I'm more of a real (laughs) drill down, you know, learn, you know, sort of thing. But, you know, maybe there's room for all these different approaches throughout the curriculum. Maybe in 10 weeks, we can't both have fun and bear down, you know? (laughs) Well, so how long have you been teaching this, this version of your class? Oh, well, I've been at UW for like 24 years. So I guess like basically it's 24 classes. And so I have actually sometimes taught it at the senior level as an elective. And then sometimes that is like, that is kind of pleasurable because it's smaller. It's just 12 students and they each do one and they're at a higher level of craft. Yeah, but I've changed quite a bit because I used to do what my professor did. Like they just made those boards. Then I was like, come on, they can't just make these boards. (laughs) Like you gotta make the whole typeface. If you don't make the typeface, you don't kind of see anything. But it took me a while to kind of figure out the right prompt for it and stuff. Yeah, making a full featured typeface that's kind of text worthy is is a pretty high bar. Like I could let them do more fun things, like more display things. 
it's just harder does, for does me. Does this mean you've been like thinking about it, but not doing it for 24 years? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say I've kind of only loosened up in the last five years. Like I really didn't have any qualms in the first 15 years. I was like, no, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. And then in the last five years, I started to think, you know, there are other aspects of life. <laughs> and in 10 years, you'll, you'll give it a shot. Yeah. Well, maybe this year. You know, like, I'm actually really inspired by people like James and Bonson of the Oh No Type Company. Because it's like, it's interesting to see someone who's so different from yourself. I'm just mm -hmm. like, I saw he on, on Twitter, he said something like, some people complained, like, these fonts aren't very useful for text yeah. settings or something. <laughs> and I was just like, well, yeah. <laughs> like this is he's got like hobo rococo like what right. did you think you could do with that you know but at the same time i'm amazed that like the intensity he puts forward to like realizing what are so, like sometimes like i think in a way like kind of slightly daft ideas you know but he does it to the nth i really respect that you know? yeah karen i was wondering if you actually saw creedy monga's uh talk at type weekend she is an educator in india and she does a really interesting expressive type projects with her students um and they're not designing a whole typeface but she'll like for example take her students outside and they'll use mops and they'll make type on the ground to understand how form works and stuff like oh, that cool. i feel I it, like opened my mind. Uh, I think about this talk like every other day. I swear it like totally opened my mind to thinking about type and you know small exercises that will like make you appreciate it in a different way. And they're like using their hands and stuff like this. It's so fascinating. Maybe that would be an interesting way to start. Like I've seen that kind of water drawing on cement. Like I think they do that sort of thing at like KABK. You know, they even have some kind of massive expansion um, pen. I've seen it. It's like um you know like five inches wide or something like that that people can use it's really pretty cool but i think that yeah maybe that would be cool to do something really loose as a prompt based on tools and then to bear down see i guess my problem has always been like what do i do after the loose thing do we just stand around and say like cool man you know or do we <laughs> you know, like how do we move it forward you know but <laughs> That's fair. Um, I mean, that I might be honestly an avenue to start talking about why the technical craft is so important. Like, yeah, here's like the creative side, idea. and now, yeah. you know, it's kind of lacking these qualities, and that's what we can get out of the technical yeah. side. I just have a tendency to like sanitize so much that all that original stuff goes away. Like this last quarter, one of the alphabets, like I follow the alphabets on Instagram and they had shot a picture of this amazing nut vendor in New York City who had handwritten this cashews in this crazy way. And I was like, oh, cool. So we'll use that for a type prompt. And then I realized as I was working with them, I kept saying like, all the ball serif should be the same size or you can't close up the aperture that much you know and in the end it was like nicely cleaned up rounded <laughs> you know? and then i was like hey it doesn't quite have the juice of the original <laughs> you know? like you can just keep airbrushing until there's nothing there you know and i was like oh i should have stopped earlier you know? <laughs>
<laughs> have you noticed like differences with your students, let's say like in the recent past and you know, what tendencies they seem to have? Um, I think, you know, our generation of creators is just like evolving day by day and you have such a front row look to people in the industry. We don't really have a front row look. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, what are you noticing with students' interests, with students' abilities um, that you see continuing in the near future that may make you optimistic about what's happening or any sort of changes that you've noticed? I mean, this might just be because we're here in Seattle, which is an incredibly liberal blue city. But I am amazed at how like accepting and inclusive the students are and like how eager they are to participate in like social equity. Like I was trying to explain to a student, you know, before it was just like, you know, sure, like people were mean to you because you were the only woman or whatever, but you just went in the bathroom and cried. <laughs> you waited till like your face wasn't red anymore. And then you came out and you're like, okay, our proposal was shut down. You know, <laughs> like it was just like, I mean, you just kind of took it, you know, but it's like, it's amazing. They wrote a letter to the guy, an older guy in my department who teaches design history saying that even though it was like a Western European history class that they wanted to change the class, that they wanted it to include you know like other viewpoints and that you know it was like there were things happening other than the Bauhaus and so then they did this great project I mean to his credit he accepted that in which each of them chose like an African-American designer to research and highlight and start making a wiki about but I mean they're really very very generous and supportive of each other like I thought we were far more as a class of students like competitive and slightly eager to cut each other down <laughs> <laughs> like they really are, you know, eager to lift each other up. So it gives me great hope for the, you know, the future to see them mobilize right now and to, you know, like several students said to me, like, I want to make an announcement about how kids can vote in Washington state. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess we could take five minutes out to do that. <laughs> you, know? Like, you know, I mean, that is great, you know. I mean, that is great. I I think that like you have that front row seat and that makes me optimistic to hear that. I mean, especially what you talked about is design history because um, I mean, I'm, I'm interested that in that enough and I follow enough people that are also educators trying to make differences like Silas Monroe is doing a lot of research and I think he's trying to prep a course that's like an alternate history of design. Um, but that's great seeing like the kids actually like younger students getting up and participating in that as well. I think that there's a lot of change that's happening and I, I'm hopeful and that's lovely to hear as well for me knowing that that's who's coming into the workforce next and they're well you know, I thought your talk at type week I'm was great that way because I thought it was interesting to take what was normally codified like okay this is the story of this kind of heroic you know designer who has this and to like peel it back and be like hey there were a lot of other things behind that you know <laughs> and I think I think that you know even that talk recently from the gal who's researching the linotype women you know the monotype drafting office the T I think TDO Alice. yeah mm -hmm. I thought that was amazing because you know in the past we were just like oh this guy drew all the letters himself and that's the, like a famous typeface you know so to know that they're all all these um, this force behind it you know so yeah it's great to see you know people working to make type history more complete yeah yeah absolutely 
Um, okay. I think I only have a couple of questions left. One of them, I'm really interested in your answer. What advice would you give to a designer or an educator that is thinking about creating an educational resource like designing type or like a book or a class, um, but possibly like intimidated by the undertaking? It seems like, oh, this is the end all be all. If I create this thing and put it into the world, what about all these people that will judge me? I mean, it's very brave to do that. And I think that a lot of people find your work very inspiring. So I'm curious what you have encountered as a challenge and what you have learned from in the past um, as an educator or even as an author. Well, it sounds kind of boring. I'm kind of a Hermione Granger kind of person and that I always, when I have a problem, I run to the library and look at a book. And so the book that helped me the most is there's a book called Getting It Published. And it's written by a guy who's a former dean of the Cooper Union. I think he still teaches there. And so I just didn't understand how it all works when you have, when you want to write a book that you have to send a query letter and then they ask you for your proposal and that the proposal would have a table of contents and that you would have um, some sample chapters and so forth. You know, so I was actually kind of intimidated by that whole thing. But after I read that book, I felt like, okay, well, I'll just follow what this book says. <laughs> so I did exactly what they said. They said, you know, look at other publishers that publish books like that. So I went to the bookstore and I was like, okay, looks like there's some books on typography by these publishers. And then some I liked more than others because I thought they, you know, more elegant or more high level as opposed to like a thousand cool fonts. I'm like, oh, I hope they don't want <laughs> me to write something like that. And so then you could actually go on their web pages. And actually it's much nicer now. Like most publishers have a thing that talks about unsolicited manuscripts and that like what they want you to send and that if you, and actually in those days, see, I had to send everything physically. My experience was surprisingly simple. You know, it's like, um, the first person on my list actually was Lawrence King books because I liked the books and I thought they were very nice and everything. And so I found the name of the acquisition editor and I wrote my little thing there and they wrote back right away and said, um, yeah, that sounds interesting. Send um, your proposal. And then they called me and they said, let's talk about it. And they offered a contract and everything. So I was sort of surprised. But I realized maybe graphic design publishing isn't as tough as like if you were trying to write like another book on Shakespeare. <laughs> you know? Because like, I didn't realize it, but the graphic design market's fairly commercial. They need this stuff so that they can make money. So I guess I, I was sort of surprised at actually how eager they were to actually get inquiries and to act upon that. So I didn't think that was so bad. It's harder dealing with the part that you mentioned where it's like I'm thinking that you're good enough to write a book because that's like almost every day that I worked on it I also thought who am I to write a book? Mm. <laughs> this is stupid. And then especially before you have the contract you think maybe no one will ever read this and I could be baking bread or you know, mm -hmm. enjoying myself or spending time with my husband and dog, you know, there's a lot of other things. So it feels really foolish to be working on something before you kind of have a client for it. It's nice if you can do it for another reason. Like I was sort of lucky because I was doing it for my class. So I was like, I'm not working on a book. I'm making handouts. <laughs> you know I mean? Even though I kind of thought like, oh, I hope these things can become a book. You know, I so. feel like that could translate to people who want to be learning to make type too. Of like, oh, I have to make this logo. So I'll learn how to draw some letters or something like that. 
that yeah, could any big thing. If you can kind of trick yourself into not looking at the whole mountain, that you're just working on little parts of it, and then you have to do what works for you. Like I had a hard time just looking at the the writing part. It was fun making the diagrams, and I knew how to work on that. But like actually writing it and stuff like that, I found I had to go to coffee shops because like when I was at home, I just couldn't focus on it, you know. But for some reason, I didn't want people in coffee shops to see that I was on on eBay or just like, you know, like, like I was like, oh, but these people I don't know at coffee shops have to see that I have Word open and I'm writing the text of a book. <laughs> you know, I don't know why, like what difference does it make, you know? <laughs> but I found like, you know, you have to find some kind of environment and setup that helps you get in the mood. And I think that's very personal for different people, you know? Yeah, that coffee shop, did you, same. I don't know why I care what other people see <laughs> yeah. on my screen. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, people can't see I'm on Facebook or whatever. You know? It's just like, no, I'm here working. I'm an important worker. <laughs> so I'm curious when you started working on the second edition and the writing for that, and what has changed since the first edition? Well, like the nice thing about having a book and then teaching with it is actually every year that I taught with it, I would find something that I should have said. What's funny is kids would point out to me, they would be like, in the book, it says this. And I'm like, I know, but I wrote the book and I'm telling you that this isn't quite right. I should have said this. And then they would look at me suspiciously, like she doesn't know what's in here. And I'm like, look, this is this is my book. <laughs> and that still happens. But I would make little notes and post-its and stuff like that about all the things that I thought should be changed. And then it was probably, of course, unwise, but I would look at different negative reviews. And if people said something negative, like a lot of people said, hey, she doesn't say anything about calligraphy. How can you have a book on type design and have like no mention of calligraphy? And I was like, well, I know it's there, but I assumed you'd get another book to look at <laughs> calligraphy. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm not a calligraphy expert, but then I was like, oh, I should probably like say a few things about it. So then I would like try to put together stuff like that. Karen, <laughs> I heard that you contacted some type designers for your second book to, you know, see if you could use their type in your second edition. Who were they? Because you said some of them knew your book and knew who you were. Oh, yeah, that was actually one of the nicest things about it. There's a husband-wife couple that designed Godot Gothic. And so it's a little hard to find their website. I prefer to buy from them directly if I can, because it like goes to them as opposed to if I buy from an aggregator like fonts.com or whatever. Mm -hmm. But afterwards, um, they wrote me and they said that they were like, hey, are you Karen Chang of Designing Type? And I'm like, I am. And they were like, oh, we use your book in our class. I think they teach in um, Europe, but I think her name is Natasha Odell. I don't remember his name so well, unfortunately. Oh, there was a wonderful email from the gal. You know, she has the signage type that was bought by commercial type. It's a really interesting stencil type orientation. Do you know which one I'm talking about? She wrote, I asked also whether I could use her typeface and she wrote back and she, she said she knew about it. It is one of the depressing things about getting older. Like I'm 50 now. And so when people are like, oh, that was my first book. You're like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> So that's kind of neat. It's really stood the test of time though, because I 
picked it up 10 years later and I was like, oh my God, this is the most current resource I could possibly have found on type design. So, it, I mean, it really does hold up on bookshelves. That's why Not maybe cool. the technology part. That also had to be revised because, you know, all this stuff that's new now, the variable type oh. and stuff like that. And, you know, sure. remember OpenType wasn't out when that happened and stuff like that too. Oh. So that was sort of shocking. I should also say that I had this great student. His name is Peron Tan and he's like a total autodidact uh, in type design. And so it was actually really wonderful for me to have him because he had gone through the book. He reads every thesis when it comes out of KABK or Reading. Like he's just like a total type nerd. He helped me with my book quite a bit and he's on top of every new, you know, type release and so forth. And it's just like, it was just great having somebody who, even though what, he must be 30 years younger than me. He was a peer and I could talk, you know, deeply about type with him because I really don't have that in my day to day life with other faculty members like there's other faculty members who are great designers, but nobody's as much into it as I am. So <laughs> I want to shout out breed. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely Yeah, he's he's great, actually. And so he, he was a huge help. I asked him for his thoughts on the first edition. And I should send you the image back. It's like, you know, 200 post it notes. <laughs> you know, like inside. Wow, yeah, shoot, maybe we yeah. should get his contact info. Maybe he can help us with the newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I'm sure he'd be delighted to do that, you know. So he works in tech now, like almost all the students wind up doing, you know. So the type is his, his passion and he does it all in the free time. Yeah. That's interesting. This, this might be a tangent, but I'm curious about that. Like you just mentioned, a lot of your students go into tech doing what? Design for tech? Like... Does this lead into coders? Does this lead into like other job areas? Or is this uh, well? The the University of Washington is pretty much a generalist undergraduate program. Eighty percent of the students stay in the Pacific Northwest area, and I think the biggest single employer is Microsoft. You know, mm. then there's another, you know, maybe fifteen percent that go to the, you know, Silicon Valley, and so you know they mostly go into product design. So we have alums at like Pinterest, at Facebook, at um, Netflix, at um, Airbnb. Those are sort of where the growth has been in jobs. Sometimes it's more straight graphic design. Like we have somebody who works in the brand for um, Airbnb. So mm. um, he makes the material for the conferences they have or the in-house logo, or they have a magazine, I believe too. But I think he was part of commissioning the Dalton Mag typeface for them, Serial. That Serial. Seen. Yeah. And then some of the alums we have at Google, there's a gal who actually did the Google material language. And I think she was involved in the logo type redesign of the Google, you know, when they went from the Garamond to the sans serif that they have. And then there's some, we have some alums in New York. We have actually a pretty big group at Lippincott, you know, one of the larger mm. branding agencies. And so I think they largely work with monotype when they have custom type needs, you know, so that's kind of classic branding. I think they have a lot of banks like Goldman Sachs. It'd be interesting to know the league audience, but I kind of thought that that's pretty much the nature of the market now is students work for still some traditional branding, you know, but a lot of digital product design now. I do think that that's very true. And it just kind of hearing you say that made me realize there could probably be a whole Freakonomics episode about the correlation between people who like take a class like yours in undergrad and turn into product designers working at these companies who then 
convince the leadership to have some sort of like custom font developed because they're interested in it. And suddenly that becomes this whole new trend of the last 10 years of all of these new companies working to get their own versions of Helvetica or whatever. Yeah, that's true. Although I think Perron convinced their company to license a very beautiful Sarah from commercial type. <laughs> mm. But that too, you know, I wonder if just like the the introduction in undergrad of typographic education has then led to, even if you go into something like product design where you're focusing on UX and, and all of these other areas of design, you still have this love for typography that you try to work into your job somehow, convince somebody to buy a great font or make a great font or whatever. I think that would be wonderful. I mean, because I guess this is the way the economy is going, right? That a lot of our products and services are moving online and people need to differentiate you know, themselves in some way with a brand identity. Although I've seen it criticized as a kind of blandification. There is a great deal of similarity between certain brands now and there is a kind of look. Mike and I, I think we did a custom fonts for brands episode on Nerd Alert and I took a look at like Netflix stands and I think it was like Uber's typeface and cereal and like they're all bold geometric sans serif circular dots to the eye to add a little friendliness. <laughs> it becomes the same. That's a whole another interesting topic. But even as you said, someone choosing to invest in a license from a beautiful Sarah family from commercial type, that's less common, I think, than we all think it is. Because I think it's easier for someone to find an affordable typeface, license it, and like then they're done. Or it's easier to find something that's very common. Find a little bit more of like a specially tailored family and to invest in it. I think that's, you know, a valuable thing to teach students, if anything at this point. Yeah, I think that's true. I dare say, though, that the reason a lot of those tech companies do it is I think there is a cost savings to developing your own typeface rather than licensing one from monotype, probably cheaper. And then you can probably get certain features, especially language features that weren't, you know, part of the original set. So I'm sure um, I'm sure they wouldn't do it if it didn't also make financial sense. One last question we're going to ask. I know you name dropped a lot of people throughout this, but is there anyone that you want to shout out to in the letter form world, whether it be typography or lettering or education that you really admire? There's lots of people to admire. Like I do want to make sure I thank Jean-Francois Porchez because he had spent so much time and effort, I think, like providing me with kind of a secondary education. And then I did want to thank Heinz Schenker, which is my original type teacher. He was so kind and generous with his time too. I wanted to say there's some people doing some great work now, especially I think like the alphabets or Amber Weaver who started femme type, you know, because I do love to see that, you know, there are more women in type now, you know, but even so, I guess it's still like 30% of type designers are female, you know, but it's great to see, you know, that percentage increasing. And then one designer who I was really grateful for recently is I was in touch with um, Inga Plone, because I'm not sure I'm saying her name right, but she allowed me to license her typeface uh, magnet for a poster that I did for the AIGA. I had a poster invitation thing where, um, because it's the 19th Amendment, the anniversary of women getting the vote. And for my poster, I really wanted to use a typeface designed by a woman. And I really liked her typeface because it was in the Femme Type book. And so I 
I wrote to her and she allowed me to get like an early license, even though I think she sold it to Tobias Ferrer Jones, who I think is also like a wonderful person who does a lot for the type community. And so like, I was grateful for their generosity. I mean, to be honest, I think like many type designers are very generous. The student I was talking about, Perron Tan, when he was working on his typeface, which is a revival of Romanet, he contacted Fred Schmiers as well as David Jonathan Ross, and they both like sent him long critiques and helpful advice about his typeface. Especially, I think David Jonathan Ross is such a great supporter, and I love that idea of font of the month. I'm a member of font of the month. It's fun to see, you know, all these sort of new ideas about how to, I guess, monetize or make it viable for you to be a practicing type designer. And he just genuinely seems like a really warm, positive person. Mm-hmm. I met him right after I graduated college because I got a scholarship to go to typographics and he was like in one of the group circles and he was very kind and just as warm as I think he comes off on the internet and very supporting of um, young type designers out there too. So I agree with you. Yeah, no, there's so many people I think who work behind the scenes too to make type accessible, like we're talking about the type weekend conference, you know, or even the soda people. I think, you know, they've done a lot to make type design more accessible to larger groups. Soda people? I don't know. Oh, the Society of Typographic Aficionados. They put on TypeCon. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's kind of an unsung hero group. I mean, there's these six educators who do it. And I think it's a ton of work, you know, and so it's just hard to get that organized every year. And I think TypeCon is one of the most inclusive conferences where you can see Matthew Carter, but you can also see some guy who collects soda pop labels, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like really like a whole soup to nuts kind of view. I feel like true type nerds are the people that want to span that (laughs) true like design effect and like the people that have innovated for the past 20 years in type design. <laughs> yeah. And they give that um, award out too to the young type designer, like uh, Roxanne Gateau. She's the one who actually told me about Alphabet. She's the designer of Belly, which is kind of a, uh, like a fat serif and so forth. So yeah, it's just like, I feel like these kinds of events bring people together. You meet them and make everybody feel included under a big tent. Well, I'm very glad that Type Weekend brought us together. Yeah, that was great. I've actually, like, I started subscribing to your podcast. I have to listen to some more episodes and I learned about the league. I think that's great. This must be a real labor of love for the two of you. It is. It is. It is. is. Um, Okay, I'm pretty much wrapped up with my questions. Micah, do you have any further? No, I think that was awesome. Thank you so much. This was really fun and uh, very informative. I think people are going to enjoy it a lot.